Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mayborn, and today I'm joined by Dean Sharif Sharp. Dean is an LSE Fellow in Human Geography at the London School of Economics and Political Science, working in geography and the environment. He was previously a Fellow at the Aga Khan Programme for Islamic Architecture at MIT and the Co-Director of Terraform Centre for Advanced Urban Research. He's the co-editor of Beyond the Square, Urbanism and the Arab Uprisings, and Open Gaza, Architectures of Hope. I'm delighted that he's here today to, to talk to us about a number of really interesting points of of space and geography and urban politics. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Dean to the show. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, I've recently discovered your work, which has been really, really stimulating, really provocative. And um, I, I must ask, as, as, um, as I always do at the start of this, what, what was it that, that got you interested in, in urban politics and, and in the Middle East? Uh, as I'm sure everyone tells you, it's a, a long story. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll try and do a shorter version. I mean, on the one hand, and, and maybe a more romantic view, is that it starts in the 1950s, uh, with uh, long before my birth. I, I was going to say, I didn't think you were that old, but um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, but, I mean, when my father went to university uh, in, the, in Liverpool, his best friend was someone called Farouk El Ghari, who, uh, who unfortunately recently passed away. He was a very notable Egyptian architect. And when my dad, uh, uh, an architect as well, called Dennis Sharp, uh, and Farouk basically became best friends and lifelong friends. And so we would often go to Egypt. Uh, and that was uh, always a major part of my life growing up. And at the same time, my mother is um, uh, Indian uh, from East Africa and from a part of the Ismaili community, which right. was equally part of my upbringing. Um, and so Islam has always been uh, an important part of who I am and, and my cultural uh, mm. and intellectual uh, background. And so as this all kind of came together, the School of Oriental and African Studies, where, to be honest, I, I came to really learn more about uh, East Africa, but then there's such an incredible intellectual, political charge to that place that does gravitate to a large extent around the Middle East and certainly something that I uh, also began to engage with and uh, my master's supervisor there was someone called Lale Khalili, who's obviously a huge figure within Middle East studies and yeah. had a profound intellectual impact uh, on myself. Um, and then I, I went to Egypt to, to learn Arabic, but I think uh, is also a, a path many people have, have also trodden on. Hmm. Uh, uh, and, um, and, and stayed basically, you know, this was in 2005 uh, and really then became a journalist in Lebanon and and then went into a PhD where I, I kind of really brought a lot of that journalistic work that always focused on the built environment. I, both my parents are architects and, and that has also profoundly shaped my intellectual framing as well. Um, and that that is how I approached the, the Middle East through this tradition of, of geography and spatial analysis 
that was very much then part of the, the scholarly work that I did on, on Lebanon in my PhD that, that focused on the Urban Development Corporation Solidaire that was the centerpiece for the national reconstruction that followed the, the end of the Civil War, the, the start of the 90s. Amazing. That's so rich. Um, so, so many things to pick up on. Uh, I guess that I want to ask you about your, your early recollections of, of going to Egypt then and, and being surrounded by, by architecture and, um, and, and, and the, the sort of the, the urban developments, the transformation, the, the processes of urban transformation, um, and I guess, and architects. So what, what was that like on, on a young boy and the, in the sort of formative years, I guess? Absolutely. Yeah, I was in Egypt at, uh, and at the American University of Cairo where I did the Arabic language program at yeah. a very interesting time because it was just before the then transition to the new campus right. uh, happened, um, you know, to, to the, uh, the, not the outskirts of Cairo, but certainly away from, from the centre of Cairo. Mm-hmm. Uh, their campus is just by Tahrir Square. That obviously, um, you know, became infamous during the, the course of the Arab uprisings, and there was that dramatic transformation. Uh, you know, I, I lived just by the, the campus uh, on the other side of Cape Perea, which many uh, e- Egypt lovers will, will know um, mm. as a, a place of, of gathering and, and talking politics and, and other life dilemmas or, or interests. And um, but to talk specifically about the urban transformation, you know, one of the things that, as the Arab uprisings happened around Tahrir and my experience of living in that area, what what really fascinated me was there was a major scheme um, that was developed around just before 2011 to develop that whole area that was outlined in in Cairo 2050 plan to expel a lot of the inhabitants of this area and to do a a large uh, urban development scheme that was not uh, unsimilar and actually was heavily influenced by what happened in Beirut and and Solidaire. Um, And it was fascinating to me that at the very moment that they were planning this mass expulsion from this area, you saw this incredible gathering and, mm. and agglomeration of people in Tahrir Square that, that we witnessed. And that and, and the fact that Cairo, you know, had been and its populace stretched ever further across this uh, desert landscape, uh, away from the Nile, away from places like Tahrir. And that, that it's not something that's happened recently. This is actually something that, that dates back to, to NASA and um, even before. But NASA really uh, did the first kind of so-called desert cities and, and that really trying to uh, solve what was deemed to be a housing crisis through large satellite urban developments. That, you know, and, and in some ways it had reached a peak um at some point, although I say a peak, of course, now we have CC building a new administrative capital, 45 kilometres from the uh, from Cairo. That is again another example of this uh, attempt to uh, build these mass urban development projects um, 
through complexes of uh, economic circulation, of political pressure, and, and all of these different issues tied in together at ever greater scales. Um, but to go back to this Cairo 2050 plan and, and this fact that at the very moment um, there was this plan for mass expulsion, there was this incredible agglomeration uh, that was witnessed in Tahrir Square, I found absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that my time in Cairo was, was certainly very uh, impressionistic of that. These, these larger development uh, projects that were trying to decenter the city and the battles that people had in trying to claim and uh, shape the urban space in which they live in, which, you know, we urban geographers utilizing the term that Lefebvre coined uh, of the right to the city uh, place a lot of attention on. Well, you've just you flagged up this this key term um, put forward by Lefebvre, uh, and, and also identified yourself as an urban geographer. And for, for for some of our listeners, that will of course both of those will be incredibly familiar. But for those that that aren't aware of of, of the the discipline or the uh, uh, maybe a collective of urban geographers, what what is it to um, what does it mean to be an urban urban geographer? What what is it that urban geographers do? It's always amazing how the simplest question can be so difficult. <laughs> Sorry. <What? laughs> it's wonderful. You know, what is an urban geographer? It's something that I've, I've struggled with. And I think, you know, everyone gets faced with these existential questions. Of what, what does it mean to be an urban geographer? Now, of course, I'm completely fascinated and, and love cities. I always have. Um, and that is certainly... First and foremost, my motivation to to be this this thing we call an urban geographer. I, I love the the vibrancy and the buzz of a place like Cairo uh, or Beirut, and the different um, you know urban lifestyles and forms that get constituted in this urban fabric. You know whether it's Cairo and the the noise of the horns and the the mosques and the shisha cafes and the Shahabi music and the koshery places and the conversations you can have with the vegetable guy on one corner and the shop um, keeper on the, on the other and you know that that constant buzz and activity and the different social practices that it produces and the graffiti and and all of that rich texture and I, I, all of that is certainly constitutive of, of what an urban geographer is is trying to analyze you know the meaning of these practices how they come together. Um, and uh, and that kind of more positive framing of of, uh, of how people shape and interact with their urban context, and that all of course becomes constitutive of, of what it means for the rights of the city, the ability of people to be able to achieve that uh, shaping of their of their context. But as we know, in places like Cairo and, and also globally, the ability of people to shape their surroundings is not one that is done in a context of freedom um, yeah. and that efforts to displace, to dispossess, to entrapped in, in uh, uh, are, are frequent and, um, and proliferate, not just in places like Cairo, but, but throughout the world. I mean, processes of gentrification, of course, were first identified in uh, 1960s North London mm. um, by, by uh, a sociologist. So 
these these are certainly global questions that have, have global implications. But um, it's also important to add that as an urban geographer, you know, you're also co confronted with this impossible question of what is the urban, um, <laughs> and you know, it isn't just maybe this bounded central city that we might think of or this space of Tahrir Square and that the hinterland of an urban area is absolutely a part of what makes uh, urban fabrics. Um, I mean, if you look at ecological footprints of, um, of cities like Cairo uh, or New York, they're absolutely enormous and the kind of extraction that goes on to produce the cement, the water, the energy um, that you know enables urban processes and processes of urbanization to occur are vast and actually challenging uh, human ability to live uh, sustainable lives and, and how you know we keep life going on, on this planet. For instance, you know, one of the stories of the past hundred years have certainly been the urbanization of, of China. And to cite a, a famous urban geographer being David Harvey, he, you know, points out the fact that China from 2008 to 2013 consumed more, consumed and produced more cement than the United States did from 1900 to 2000. Yeah, and that mm. kind of vast production and consumption of cement has profound ecological consequences that you know we're we're still trying to grapple with, and in terms of understanding what that means for human life, but it's also creating this climate emergency that we're currently living in, and and this is certainly something that relates to the Middle East as well, where cement production is is skyrocketing. Um, energy and water consumption equally and, and we're also witnessing the collapse of these systems. In Lebanon for instance we are seeing a, a system in which the electricity provision is going down to around two hours per day and you know the ability to to live in, in an urban fabric like Lebanon you know just to make a little footnote here that Lebanon is arguably a territory that is entirely urbanized. Yeah. Um, is becoming increasingly difficult with the erosion of, you know, in Lebanon we have the collapse of the, the waste, uh, municipal waste system, uh, collapse in, in electrical systems with, the, as I noted, only two hours a day and, and the threat of complete blackout um, shadowing the country uh, constantly. Um, the provision of water and potable water is, is becoming ever increasingly desperate. And then also, of course, within that, really marked uneven geographical landscapes being produced. So you have a case of Solidaire where there are autonomous sewage networks, electricity networks and um, and other kind of basic urban services, and and then a, and also a landscape created by some of the greatest architects in in the world, from Norman Foster to Zaha Hadid, and, and then surrounding it 
is is an urban landscape that is increasingly eroding and and corroding. So there's there's so much in there to pick up on, and we certainly don't have have time to to delve into into many of those, unfortunately, because the the environmental, the the waste management, the electricity, the architectural are, are all really fascinating questions in in Beirut, let alone anywhere else. But I guess I guess what you've just done in a really really stimulating manner is is highlight the. The, the myriad different things that that urban geography does so thank you for for doing that in such a stimulating way um i, I have so many questions to to pick up on from that and i think maybe looking at beirut might be quite quite useful in this sense because the sort of the interaction of those things that you've just listed the the architectural design the the heavy or heavily urbanized nature of of life in in lebanon the uh, the environmental concerns the electric concerns the ecological concerns while they are issues in and of themselves they're also fundamentally political so all of this strikes me as being intersectional and fundamentally political let alone focusing on on space time geography uh, absolutely, they're political, and and I think it's trying to really place a, a focus on how space is politics and and time, and yeah. how those intersect. Uh, I mean, to to maybe ground the those questions into politics, and and in some of the work that I've been doing of late is really trying to look at reconstruction debates that are raging at the moment in Lebanon with the in the aftermath of the 2020 August 4th explosion that happened in the port. Um, you know, this is resulted in Lebanon facing yet another reconstruction um, in this immediate downtown area since the 1970s. I think this is the sixth reconstruction project uh, or sorry the fourth reconstruction project large-scale reconstruction project that this area has has faced uh, and sick for the country as a whole um you know from the civil war you had proposals for the reconstruction after conflict in 1977 then another one in 1981 and then the, the final kind of reconstruction that happened with with solid air uh, and now we're faced with the um, the port uh, explosion, um, and you know you can look at how oftentimes the reconstruction process, in and of itself, because of politics, or uh, and how politics becomes so central, becomes uh, a, a means through which conflict is pursued through other means. So, for instance, you've had the CDR, the Council for Development and Reconstruction, be a central mechanism through which warring parties are being able to uh, conduct extractive politics to, um, uh, you know, siphon off large sums of, of public money to various factions um, and elite reproduction mechanisms. Um, you've had Renoir Linders on um, your show before, who's you know produced some excellent research on on that period, and equally on the poor and how 
you know, the explosion, at least in part, was a result of the dysfunctional political architecture that was established in the wake of the Civil War and instituted through the Tayyip Agreement mm-hmm. in 1989. Um, and the, the kind of share, power-sharing mechanisms that resulted in such a lucrative site like the port being, again, a political uh, uh, institute of certain form of politics that enabled dysfunction uh, and conflict to flourish and, and an extractive uh, logic to be embedded that then devastated the, the, the whole city of Beirut and, and country um, and how then reconstruction must not be thought of only in terms of replacing windows or rebuilding win- uh, roads but how reconstruction is first and foremost a political act yeah and those political structures that are absolutely forefront and central um to be placed so so that means that organizing professional associations um you know constituting political parties and political programs and visions for how to achieve a more just, beautiful and equitable Lebanon is fundamentally a part of reconstruction. Uh, is as much as clearing the streets and yeah. replacing broken windows and producing scaffolding to, to repair buildings. But that political work mm-hmm. is reconstruction uh, as well to ensure that reconstruction doesn't become a mechanism of violence, what I've turned reconstruction as violence. These are all questions that you've addressed, obviously, in, in the writings and the, the edited collections that you've, you've pulled together. So I would, I would urge people to, to get hold of them. But I wonder if, if you can perhaps just say a little bit about that reconstruction as, as violence and the sort of the, the political issues with regard to urban geography, with regard to Gaza, because you've, um, you've done some fascinating and really important work on Gaza Recently, if I remember correctly, there was a an online event in the in the past week or two um, on on Gaza. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit about that because it it strikes me that there's not so much reconstruction as violence here, but it's certainly a regulation of space and a regulation of the urban geography which acts as violence. Yeah, absolutely. So open Gaza architectures of hope. Yeah, thank thank you for, for the plug. But <laughs> you're very welcome. <laughs> it was published this year, um, co-edited with uh, my mentor and, and the late Michael Sorkin, who unfortunately died of COVID last year, um, and it's been a profound influence on, on myself and someone who's an architect uh, and a critical urban geographer and, and blends these two disciplines together in, in profound and important ways that maybe I'll come to in a moment. But to say that reconstruction is violence... Let me just take a step back um, to to explain and, and the importance of urban geography and what it can offer, I think, to also those uh, from political science uh, and, and so on. You know, one of the... Reconstruction as violence for me came from trying to understand actually what was going on in Syria in 2013 and searching for a way in which urban geography has concepts to help us understand and, uh, this, this vast destruction of urban landscapes that we were witnessing. Uh, and so I came across this term herbicide that's actually also been utilized by political theorists to th- that's understood as the deliberate destruction of the built environment. And, and people like Stephen Graham yeah. have really, uh, and um, Martin Coward have done important works in, in trying to grapple with what we mean by herbicide. And, and then I 
added to this in, in a chapter that I produced as part of this edited volume, Beyond the Square, that I did in 2016. And I understood herbicide as not, uh, and urban violence more broadly, as not just the destruction of the built environment, but also how the construction and uh, organization or urban planning of the built environment can be very much caught up in conflict. Um, and that we mustn't just think about uh, urban violence as this destructive act, but how the construction and urban planning of, of the built environment can be every much a part of conflict. Yeah. And then, of course, this got to this term of the reconstruction as violence. And as we see now, uh, some years later, the, the debates around reconstruction raging in Syria. Um, and this now is an edited volume I'm working on with the Syrian uh, 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 architecture historian Nasser Rabat and some of the work that I was doing at, at MIT. But also equally in, in Gaza, we see um, you know, the Gaza reconstruction mechanism that was a tripart agreement between the, the UN, Israel, and the PA, also becoming a mechanism through which the control of certain materials and flows of goods and, and people become a way not to reconstruct in any normative sense of, of working towards a post-conflict era or to rebuild something that was previously destroyed, but actually as a part of a mechanism of violence, of dispossession and extraction. Um, but I must have to, to, to put a caveat here and say that the book, Open Gaza Architectures of Hope, while trying to examine the uh, extractive logics and, and questions like reconstruction of violence, was also trying to, and I hope does, shift the analytic through which we understand a place like Gaza. Uh, yeah. And not just look at it for its scenographic horror but also to look at the ways in which people in this very real context of oppression are able to be productive, imaginative and agentive agents of their own present and future. Uh, and to just really emphasize the fact that there was also a book of architectures of hope and, and to emphasize the fact that, you know, Gazans, despite the context in which they're in are able to to produce incredible works of art housing um and and generative aspects uh, of of their life worlds yeah i i think that that sense of hope is what really struck me because it's so easy to to get bogged down in the in the 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 depressing dark negative um and, and in some ways, this sense of an all-encompassing negativity in in the context of Gaza, but also in other post-conflict and indeed conflict situations. So finding that 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 nugget of hope, I think, is is hugely important. So I, I was I was really really pleased to to discover that and find some some little shoots of, of hope. So thank you for focusing no, on that. Yeah. And. Yeah. Um, Dean, there are so many things that, that we could pick up on. I have so many more questions and and I, I hope that we're able to, to pick up on this again in, in the not too distant future. But we've taken up a huge amount of your time. So I must say a, a massive thank you. It's been really fascinating talking with you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to keeping these conversations going. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Tony. A huge thank you to Dean there for his time and for talking through his absolutely wonderful research. 
You can find him, not on Twitter, but at his personal website, which is www.deansharp.com. That's deansharp.com. Dean, D-E-E-N. Do check him out. He's done some wonderful work, and it's well worth your time to, to have a look at that and his, his amazing book. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>